On this festive episode of Starpod Trek, we consider the Star Trek contents in Starlog Magazine issues 53 and 54 from 1981. Bob Turner and Kelly Casto discuss the career of Gene Winfield. David Hewitt of Foot Pound Force considers the history of field music. Plus, the Star Trek Space Design Center. Migos 2XL 8-track robot. And more on this episode of Starpod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey cutie pie. Hey Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and watched Star Trek reruns when it was on syndication. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what it was like to be a Trekkie years ago. But we leave the non-Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Log. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows, we might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app, and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to seeing our listeners very soon at ShadowCon, the first weekend in January, the 6th through the 8th. What do we love about ShadowCon, baby? It's a con where we get to meet a lot of people and has a lot of great programming. Memphis, Tennessee. Check us out. Meet us there. Starlog Magazine, issue number 53, cover date, December 1981. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. Now this is a lengthy letter that was sent to publisher Carrie O'Quinn, and it's from Lauren Coles, no address listed, but there's passages in here that I think all kids of the 70s and 80s can relate to on some point. And especially if you're a geek. It starts out by saying, Dear Mr. O'Quinn, I first read Starlog in 1977. For me, it was like a breath of fresh air. I had never heard of cons, fan clubs, or the like. I was 13. To understand what this meant to me, you have to know a few things. I live in Pittsburgh, a town called Terrace Village. The main pastimes here are drugs, sex, and hanging out, which means trouble. Ever since I was small, I was a quiet person and never participated in most of the neighborhood activities. Thus, I spent most of my time in the house drawing or reading or watching TV. Being with such great guys as Superman, Batman, Arthur C. Clarke, Bradbury, and reading such interesting things as Webster's Dictionary and New World Encyclopedia, I neglected to check out Sports Illustrated, which most of the guys on my block grew up with. But at that time, it didn't interest me too much. At school, when everyone talked about sports and what music was on the in-stations, I was quite left out. I lived in a whole different reality. One reason is that I learned to read before I ever set foot in school, thanks to Mom. This made me a big hit with my teacher and a lot of enemies with my peers. I've never been a fighter, 
and for a while I was the most picked-on person in school. Finally I was forced to fight, and after that nobody bothered me for a long time, but I was still teased a lot. I kept my talent for art and interest in science fiction to myself. This made me very unhappy, since I am a person who likes to share. By the time I got into fifth grade, I had a very exemplary command of the English language, and was the most knowledgeable kid in class, but I was still teased, and I was still unhappy. In an attempt to bridge the gap between myself and the other kids, I got into music and received a certificate for high achievement in violin and vocal. By this time, I was a very good artist, model builder, and storyteller. I developed an interest in miniature photography and cranked out some G.I. Joe photos and still get compliments today. I owe part of my survival during that difficult time to my mom, who is a super lady, and to Mr. Spock, who helped me realize that a person who uses his brain hardly ever has to use his fists. As a result, I got into 27 debates and only two fist fights. The next year, I got sick and went into a coma. It was discovered that I had inherited diabetes. When I finally went back to school, I found that my one and only friend had been transferred to another school. I had to take insulin twice a day. I was four months behind the other kids. Finally, I flunked out of seventh grade and had to repeat. I discovered Starlog about one month before Star Wars came out. It opened worlds I had never seen before. It fired up my imagination. I was elated. Finally, I said, people who do the same things that I like to do. Previously, if someone said, Are you one of those sci-fi nuts? I answered, I like it a little. Now, I hand them a copy of whatever issue I might be toting around with me, and I say, Yep, I sure am. You should try it. I am 17 now, and my life is taking on a new direction. I go to an alternative school where one of my favorite classes is science fiction. All my grades are back to par, and I get to graduate in December of 1981. My novel, Children of the Wind, has 10% of its final draft finished, and I'm about to embark on a movie project. Next year, I start at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh with cinematography as my major. Throughout my life, science fiction has been a big factor. I'm proud to say Starlog has been part of my growth and maturing. I hope that it continues to exist for a long time so that it might guide others the way it did me. Sincerely, Lauren Coles. What do you think about that expression? That was awesome. Yes, how science fiction and Starlog saved a person, basically. And I can relate when he said that he was inspired by Mr. Spock. I think I told the story before that when I was in middle school, I used to think about how would I handle this situation? How would I apply IDIC? Sci science fiction and Star Trek especially can motivate a person to be a better person. That's exactly how I feel. It's it's so great to to feel that, to try to emulate that experience and to, to try to be a good person, to try to improve yourself and to think that it's because of Star Trek, Spock and Vulcans and Idic. And the fact that this kid didn't fit in with others. I mean, I was never a big sports fan growing up. I was so happy when I found out about Starlog magazine. And finding others, especially through this podcast, has opened up our worlds. Whereas we'll go to conventions and people will recognize our voices and say, I listen to you. That's awesome to hear that. Because we know that we're in a niche society. I can't go to work and talk about Star Trek 
like I do with you or some of my other friends. Exactly. This is our, our, our own world, and a lot of people don't relate to it. So it's great that we can relate to others, and and we can find we can find this niche with, with other people who can relate to us. Yeah, it's one of the best letters I read in Starlog in a long time. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Director and special effects for Star Trek II. Nicholas Meyer, who wrote and directed the popular 1979 feature Time After Time, has been signed to direct the second Star Trek film for Paramount. The studio also confirmed that the feature is intended for theatrical release, both here and abroad, with salaries and budget set at $10 million. There were rumors circulating that the film was intended for American television to be followed by a foreign theatrical release. Look at this. We're at the end of 1981, and we are just receiving information on who the director would be for Star Trek II. You want to talk about this movie being cobbled together and produced by the seat of their pants? We know for the motion picture, we had two years' worth of information leading up to it, to the premiere. Well, and it was still rushed. It was still rushed, (laughs) but there was still some information, uh, and, and they were making changes along the way. But I think this is amazing how we get virtually nothing. So we have understanding that Nicholas Meyer is going to be the director, the rumor mill, states that the plot places Captain Kirk in a battle of wits against a foe from Star Trek's television days. Peoples, Bennett, and Sowards will be sharing screenwriting credits. Also, ILM is working on the special effects for this project. William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy are the only cast members signed on at press time, but the other regulars, with the exception of Gracely Whitney, are expected to come aboard. New characters called The New Generation are supposed to be cast and introduced shortly. So I think that's intriguing that they actually thought that there would be new cast members that they would be able to pass the torch on to. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that was, that was the original idea at first, even though it didn't it didn't quite turn out that way. So, so I mean, at least it's kind of what, like what they were planning there is what happened, at least. So they... You know, instead of changing all the time, they kept the original ideas going forward. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said, Star Trek was not about spaceships and planets and alien beings, bizarre civilizations. All those things on Star Trek were fun, entertaining, sometimes thought-provoking. But Star Trek essentially was about us, about humanity, here, now. Starpod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Hello, everybody. This is Bob Turner. And Kelly Casto. And we're from the show's 70s Trek and the unofficial Trek podcast. Today, we're talking about Starlog issue from December 1981. And... um, I got to start by talking about what's on the cover. Robots. Eh? Kelly, there are robots on the cover. Yes. <laughs> From the movie Heartbeeps. What the heck was that? Do you remember that? Not at all. I don't either. What I thought was really interesting, though, was a headline on the cover saying that uh, there was an article in this issue about the return of the greatest American hero. This was December 1981. So 
clearly the first season of Hero ended in the spring of 1981. Right. I don't remember. Was it canceled and then it was coming back? I I, I vague, vaguely remember. I think it was um, delayed start or something maybe. And didn't it, they have a woman coming back, right? Like when it did come back, I think they were thinking about putting a, a girl in the role. Yeah. I think you're right. I, it's been so long. It ha- it's been a few years. It, just a few. Just a few. But we're here to talk about the piece on Gene Winfield. It's uh, taglined custom design and execution from Star Trek to Blade Runner. And uh, he's kind of known for building the car from the man from Uncle. And, of course, the yeah. Galileo shuttlecraft from Star Trek. Right. I guess I could do like the first half of this, if, if that works for you. And sure. then you can jump in and do the next part. Sure. So let me give you some background on Gene Winfield. At the time of this article, he had just finished creating vehicles for Blade Runner. And Kelly's going to talk more about that in a sec. But his background really begins after World War II. He had joined the Navy and he served in the last couple years of World War II. And then when he came home to Modesto, California, he went into business with his brothers and they opened up a place called the Winfield Brothers Service. It was basically a gas station and garage. And he started building hot rods like a lot of people did in California at that time. Yeah. So he was on the the edge, right? He was on the cutting edge of that whole hot rods revolution in the 50s and 60s. And you remember the hot rods. I mean, all of the classic cars from then, just yep, so many. And, you know, American graffiti just kind of kind of good encapsulated that. Yeah. And and that was supposed to be, if I remember correctly, um, George Lucas's, the director of American graffiti, his hometown of Modesto. Yeah. Where this where jeans from. Right. So that's kind of right. The culture's coming together there. I wonder if they knew each other back then. I don't know. That's interesting. So Winfield um, eventually left his brothers, opened up his own place, and then added a second shop later on that did custom prototype work for Ford and Chrysler. That's crazy. So, yeah, all those space age cars that we saw in the late 50s and 60s, those prototypes, I think he had a hand in some of those. And probably, you know, those cars, the the prototypes that they take to the car shows and everything. Yeah. So that's really interesting that he was there working on, on projects like that. Yeah. So you will remember this name, fans of model kits from the 60s and 70s, AMT. AMT models enticed Winfield to move to Phoenix where they were opening up a shop. And he they wanted Winfield to build full-scale working versions of their model kits. So if they had a model kit of a souped-up Mustang, for example – they wanted Gene Winfield to build a real life version <laughs> of that car. And then it would go on tour and help promote the sales for model kits. Yeah. Really interesting idea. Actually. I love that idea. I know. I thought it was the reverse though. You know, I thought they built models based off of 
real souped up cars. This is a little different situation, isn't it? Yeah. Right, right. During this period, one of the more famous cars that Winfield designed was a car for the TV series, The Man from Uncle. Of course, The Man from Uncle, right? A story of a couple of international spies that work for an, uh, an organization called Uncle. And it was a few seasons in before they got their own spy car. You know, James Bond had had a spy car for years yeah. to this point, right? So they were <laughs> they were a little late to the game. Um, they, there's a story that Winfield told in this article about um, basing it on a Dodge Challenger, I think. Yep, Dodge Challenger. Right, but something fell through and they were afraid of a relationship with Dodge and it might not work out if advertising was pulled and the car would go away and... The way I read it was that Dodge was afraid that they were going to be getting free advertising or or the, not Dodge, but um, NBC was yes. afraid they'd be getting free advertising to Dodge and they'd pull their millions of dollars of advertising away from NBC. So they're like, nah, you can't do that. We need that money too badly. Right. Don't do that. Yes. And so that whole idea went away. But but then Winfield had the idea of basing it on a car that he had worked on. And it was based on a limited production vehicle called the Piranha. <laughs> Boy, this thing. Name. Yeah. Did you, did you go look at pictures of this yes. thing? It is so cool. It is for the period. It's got a very rounded but pointy nose, which we don't see for a few years later. Yeah. And then a really long extended um, back end. And it was a rear engine vehicle. So it's um, a very cool looking car. Um, the building of the car was paid for by AMT because, hey, they got the rights to make the model, right? Right. And they were thinking, wow, if we can have a model of a car in a TV show, boy, that ought to really push sales forward. So they thought this was a great idea. So the spy car was built with mock features, right, that that they wanted to have in the show. They wanted the car in the show to have the ability to do things like um, shoot laser beams yeah. and have rocket launchers and stuff like that. And there was a, a parachute in the back that would deploy. But then the dashboard also featured a video communications panel that, of course, using special effects right. worked. But what was really cool was Winfield was proud of the fact that all of these little systems, they were all electronically, um, uh, they worked with ind independent electronic systems. Yes. So what you see wasn't always a special effect. Sometimes there were actual physical lights or, or things moving in there that were dedicated to that feature. And so it looked like they actually worked. Yes. Um, but at the time that they were working on the man from uncle car. This is interesting. A new project came their way. Yes. Well, just before we go there. Oh, the one thing that really impressed oh. me about oh. this piranha. Sorry, or, go ahead. This uh, man from uncle car was, it had two working flamethrowers. Mm. You're right. I left the flamethrowers yes. out. The, so the grill would turn down or come down and, Two working flamethrowers would 
pop out or, or start, you know, you could actually use them. So, sorry. So no, the, the other thing cool that was, since we're going there, the other yeah. cool thing about this car is that it had gall wing doors. Yes. And when the gall wing doors opened up, the base of the door when it was down would now be at the top of the car. And in that base was a rocket launcher. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Loved it. So if you're driving down the road and I wasn't, I'm trying to remember James Bond had Spectre and I think they had smash was their bad guys. Anyway. Yeah. If you're behind a car driven by the bad guys, you'd have to open up the door to launch the rocket launchers at the bad guy car in front of you. Yeah, fun. But hey, that was fun. So why don't you tell us about the next project? So the next project that Winfield worked on while he was working on the Man from Uncle car was some a little project for Star Trek. So Star Trek needed a shuttle. And as you know, as Trek fans know, they use transporters to save on the cost of shuttles at the very beginning. Well, now they needed a shuttle and they approached AMT or somehow they got in contact with AMT and AMT signed up to do, to build the shuttle for Star Trek, you know, the Galileo. And of course the deal is, with AMT, I, hey, I, we get the model rights. Hmm. And so they built two shuttles for Desilu, uh, for Star Trek. And one was for the exterior shots. One was for interior shots. And they had what they called wild sections. These are sections of the shuttle that they could pull away, you know, so they could get a camera, the right camera angles and everything for the scenes inside the shuttle. Uh, and an interesting thing about this is, you know, that Bob and I have talked about on our podcast is that to, you know, the, the outside or the, the one built for outside shots, you try and get in there and you couldn't stand. Right. <laughs> so it wasn't exactly to scale, um, on the inside versus the outside. So, so I always thought that was funny too, because there are photos or, or. I think it's during, um, let's see, Journey to Babel, where people are getting out of the shuttle and you see the shuttle in the shuttle bay. Yeah. And their heads are above the ceiling. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but whenever we're seeing that, you know, people were inside of it. Oh, there's lots of headroom. Right. Right. Uh, so Gene also built the model for the Klingon ship. So it was a 24-inch model. And it was used in scenes like, um, wasn't it Trouble with Tribbles? Um, oh, I, um, the article didn't bring I this up. I can't remember. But yeah, so they, he, he built the, the Klingon ship that we know and love from the original series. And of course, AMT got the rights for all of the Star Trek models, really. So, Oh yeah. Right. Oh, you, okay. So that's right. They didn't show up until the third season. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. My bad. Did you already say that? No, I didn't. You did. So um. we're good. <laughs> all right. Well, after, so after AMT shop closed down and they closed down 
um, this model shop closed down because model sales were starting to slump. And so now Gene had to basically go out on his own and he continued working with movie companies though. And what he did is he built a fleet of Chevrolet cars and he would rent those out to studios for their use in film and TV. How smart is that? Yeah. Um, and of course he's still dabbling in custom cars and he, um, you know, after this time he built a car, which was all aluminum and he called it the reactor, which is such a cool name. It is a great name. And this car went around to different car shows, um, and to advertise basically what he could do, right? He was, he built basically his, his calling card, if you will. And it was this car, the reactor, uh, this car was later used in other TV shows though. So like it was used in an episode of bewitched and it was used in an episode of star Trek. The hmm. episode was bread and circuses. <laughs> so do you remember that? I do. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It's a cool car. Isn't it? What wasn't it called? The, the was it the Jupiter 12 or in the, in, in the episode? Yeah. In that episode. Yes. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> it was cool. Awesome car. All right. So that brings us to, well, current time for this issue, Blade Runner. So uh, Gene was brought on to Blade Runner to build, to build the futuristic cars that they needed for this movie. And for this movie, he built 25 working vehicles. Now, he only delivered 23. Two were destroyed in an arson fire. They didn't go into detail about the arson fire in the article, but hmm. just kind of interesting. It is. Arson fire. What right. the heck? So these cars that he built, or these vehicles, I should say, um, involved pretty much everything you've, you saw in Blade Runner that was a vehicle. So taxis, this armadillo van, um, and government-owned cars, which they called every man's car. And this was a really neat concept. Uh, and I didn't put the pieces together until I read this article. Um, these everyday or every man cars were kind of like the, the bikes and the scooters you see in cities and around campuses where you can, you know, swipe your card or whatever, and you can basically rent this little thing and go around campus or, or the city. And then just when you're done, you just drop it off and the next it's available for the next person. Well, this is the exact same concept. That is, that is fascinating that they came up with this concept some 30, almost 40 years 40, before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it took the internet obviously to bring it about because that's how you pay for it. But, right. but that's crazy that yeah. they were thinking about that before the internet was even a possibility. Yes. Um, so another vehicle he um, worked on in a little bit more detail, not much, Armadillo Vans. This van was a Dodge van that he, you know, futurized, I guess. And in the movie, it was used by S Sebastian, who was an inventor and a millionaire. So he was that character. And then he built four different police cars. And the police cars in Blade Runner are called Spinners. And these four cars... Um, 
were very a very interesting design. They the wheels were hydraulic because the spinners could retract their wheels and they go from a ground vehicle to a flying vehicle. Um, and he built so he had real hydraulics and the wheels could fold. I mean, it was practical effects. They you right. actually saw that happen. Yes. Uh, the doors were the same way. And I don't remember exactly how the doors opened, but they moved forward and they were hydraulic as well. It was, it was not gull wing. It was. They did slide. Yeah. They did slide. And slide forward. Yep. Um, so these four cars he built, he built two to be functional ground cars. So they really, you know, drove just like any other car. Uh, one was f- used for wild sections, and we talked about that earlier. That was for interior shots in the spinner vehicle. And one was a lightweight car that they could attach to a crane for the flying scenes. Isn't that crazy? It, it That's is. awesome. The other feature of these cars is it had steering that was hydraulic. And, I, you know, I don't know much about this, but... Um, it's, you twist your, your wrists instead of turning a wheel to drive the car. So, and this is what was called for, you know, from the studio and they didn't want to see a wheel, right? They wanted to see some different, some other form. Exactly. So he delivered it, but the studio found that it was very difficult to learn to steer and, I'm quoting this article. Um, They said that they kept cracking up. (laughs) I'm assuming that means they kept wrecking him. Yes, I think you're right. Uh, So the studio, not Gene, ripped out this hydraulic steering and replaced it with the traditional chain link steering wheels. So... Well, in the end, that makes sense, right? I mean, it's nice to have something that's cool and different, but if it's not working. Right. And it's, it didn't the article talk about turning the wrist and you can only turn the wrist so far. Yes. And so you couldn't get the max turn out of a vehicle. That's why they kept cracking up. They kept hitting stuff. Yes. Yeah. So, and it was different and just being different and. It, you know, he built these cars to be practical cars. They were actual drivable vehicles. So if it was just the, the dummy cars that, you know, you put a moving screen behind you and just took a shot of people driving and they weren't really driving. Okay, fine. You could do that, but not when they were really drivable cars. Right. Yep. Exactly. So that's, that's pretty much where the, the article ends. What's interesting about Jen Win- uh, Gene Winfield is just he's he's got this history of building, right? He's a guy that knows how to design vehicles. He was doing it after World War II as a young man, and he was able to take that and move into Hollywood and create things that nobody had ever thought of before. Right. Uh, you know, his work on Star Trek, creating the shuttlecraft and, and Blade Runner is another example of, of some of his, uh, of his ingenuity. And it took a guy like that to, to create those things. So it's really cool to see. It is.
thank you for turning me on. I'd much rather be on than off. I am 2XL, and this program is about science fiction. Before we begin, let me just remind you to always choose answers after I say the word now. Please do not choose answers at any other time, except when I say the word now. What planet did Superman come from? A. Krypton. B. Vulcan. Or did it come from the planet Earth? Please, if you don't mind, answer A, B, or C now. Because you have answered A, and guess what? A is <laughs> the correct answer. You apparently know Superman quite well. I believe I have a message coming in. This message is a joke. This man walks into a psychiatrist's office and says, I have a problem. I think I am a chicken. The psychiatrist asks, how long has this been going on? The man replies, since I was an egg. I got carried away. Let's get back to business here. This will be a true-false question, so please use the true-false buttons to answer it. True or false, there are two positions on a Star Trek phaser. Please answer true or false now. There are three positions on a Star Phaser. Stun, heavy stun, and kill. False was false. Which of the following was not, I repeat, not, one of Starfleet's command starships? Which of these is not, is your answer. A, Defiant. B, Galileo. C, Intrepid. Which one is not a starship? as smart as Mr. Spock. You have answered B, and B is correct. Good work. By the way, do you know why birds fly south in the winter time? Because it is too far to walk. <laughs> okay, when I was a kid, I had this little robot, and we have it sitting on the shelf right over here. We can look at it. Called the 2XL. It was produced by Mego. And Star Trek fans know the Mego Corporation for what reason? For making the Star Trek action figures from the 70s. Exactly. They ventured out and made this toy. I say toy very loosely because it was sort of an electronic game. But what was unique about it, it, it used eight-track tapes that you would purchase separately. And these eight-track tapes would have, it would be questions and answers. So since the eight-track had four buttons to it, the buttons would, would be labeled on the chest of 2XL saying question or yes, no, true, false, things like that. And so what would happen is it would ask you a series of questions and you would respond. And then it would give you answers. I loved playing with this thing. My grandfather got me different cartridges for it, such as comic books and superheroes. It came with a general information cartridge. I had one about astronomy. And one of my favorite ones was science fiction. And the science fiction cartridge actually came with some questions about Star Trek. Because in the late 70s, early 80s, Star Trek was the pinnacle of science fiction. That sounds like a neat toy. So, I mean, it was, it was educational. Yeah, that's why my grandfather liked it a lot. He said, because you learn a lot when, when you listen to this. It's so true. I would actually go out in the night sky and, and look at the stars with my grandfather's binoculars 
after listening to the astronomy tape. It's just one of those things that, when you think about it, the 8-track cassette in itself, when you think of the time era, then it was popular, it was the mid to late 70s and early 80s. Believe it or not, 8-track tapes were still being produced in 1984. Kiss collectors know that because the Animalize album is extremely expensive on 8-track tape. So, at this time period, 2XL was an awesome toy. One of our favorite things about being Star Trek fans is doing things with other fans in fandom. Now, we are members of Starfleet International, and our ship is based out of Huntsville, Alabama. We recently went to a Christmas walk with fellow members. Let's talk about that. It was called the Tinsel Trail, and it's something that they have every year in Huntsville, but this was our first time going. And you get to walk around and see um, different Christmas trees or, you know, or variations, like some of it was decorations. that, And each one was done by a different company that that's in Huntsville. And um, it, it was so cool. We were there at night. It was lit up, and everything was, was different. You know, every time you go, you see something different. Each tree was different, and it was pretty cool. Yeah, it really is. That's one of my favorite things about being part of a Star Trek fan club. Well, we're in multiple Star Trek fan clubs. But to be able to do things in real life with, with others doesn't even necessarily have to be Star Trek related, but to be able to talk about Star Trek while we're looking at all these things, too. Yes, going with our Star Trek club was great. And speaking of Star Trek clubs, our local club here in Nashville, Tennessee, we went out for our Christmas dinner, like we do every year. This time it was at Fleet Street British Pub in Printer's Alley, Nashville, Tennessee. Yes, the USS Athena of Starfleet Command. Uh, we had our annual Christmas dinner. So the restaurant was called Fleet Street. Um, I like to call it Starfleet Street. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was a nice, um, you know, British-inspired dinner where they, they had a lot of, you know, bangers on the menu. And this is run by Brits, and anybody who's been to London knows that there are a ton of Indian restaurants there, and they have Indian food on the menu. And we, we had a great talk uh, with lots of friends that we knew and met lots of new people who met us there and we gave out star trek gifts and talked a lot about star trek trek is fun around the holidays hi you remember my pal 2xl i am 2xl the smartest robot in the world don't get carried away 2xl because i can make you even smarter with these exciting new tapes for kids, teens, adults, on sports, world records, science fiction, music, puzzles, riddles, jokes. With my looks and your brains, we could go far. Don't get too smart. <laughs> 2XL tapes by Mego. At toy stores everywhere. Starlog Magazine, issue number 54. Cover date, January 1982. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. Meyer on Trek. From James Terminiello in Saddlebrook, New York. The selection of Nicholas Meyer to direct the next Star Trek may turn out to be Paramount's first brilliant stroke in dealing with that show. Meyer has proven himself to be remarkably adaptable to other styles. Witness the 7% solution. As a writer-director of Time After Time, he created a witty, fast-paced, thoroughly enjoyable adventure film. These elements were sorely missed in the first Star Trek film. On the negative side, Meyer has been accused of destroying time-honored traditions, 
such as Sherlock Holmes and his relationship with Professor Moriarty. What is to become of Kirk and Spock? What will be the changes? An interview with Meyer would be most enlightening. Well, see, fans that know Meyer's previous work are embracing the fact that he's going to come in and take charge of this franchise like it was never done before. Time After Time was a good movie, and so that's like all we have to base it on at this point. And And the 7% solution. Right, yeah. So two movies. And so, yeah, it is great, though, that that at least someone wrote a letter that they liked that he um, got the job. Movie Notes Ricardo Montalban, the omnipotent Khan in the Trek TV episode Space Seed, has been signed by Paramount to play Kirk's adversary in Star Trek II. Next to this short blurb shows a picture of Ricardo Montalban as Mr. Rourke in Fantasy Island. <laughs> yeah, um, of course we we remember him from Space Seed, but when you when you look at this, you know, back then, and you see the picture of Mr. Rourke, and you think. How could he be con now? <laughs> <laughs> so, finally, fans are getting information on who the adversary is. And I remember reading back then someone saying, you know, you know, Khan left peacefully at the end of Space Seed, so how could he be the villain now? But in- anyway, so that's, you know, speculation back then. <laughs> Save Spock survey. Paramount Pictures isn't saying anything. Leonard Nimoy isn't saying anything, and Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry isn't saying much, except that it's true. But Star Trek fans are saying plenty. They're saying Spock must not die in the second Star Trek movie. So an independent firm took some time and money, and they were involved in this group called Concerned Supporters of Star Trek. They compiled a report that indicates Paramount Pictures will be unhappy if Spock is being killed because Paramount will lose up to $28 million in revenue. So through this survey, they came up with this calculation of how much would be lost with fans being disappointed that they wouldn't watch the movie over again, they wouldn't buy any of the merchandise, they would lose contracts with cable and repeat televisions, I mean, they really put some time and thought into this. Okay, okay. Fans wouldn't buy any merchandise. That, well, they the, couldn't. <laughs> 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 well, that's one of the problems is that they didn't make merchandise for right. Star Trek too. So guess what? Paramount lost money on merchandise. So you, you you lose, you miss all the shots you don't take. And they took no shots with this. So they lost off in that sense. I like the, one of the people involved in this survey said, Spock is central to what Trek is. Without him, it would lose its specialness. If he's just written out and not killed, he's still alive in our imaginations. I don't want the image in my mind of Spock dying. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so one thing you have to realize, Star Trek II was getting a lot of publicity back then, just because, mostly because of Spock, the, the rumor about Spock. And so it, it kind of helped the fervor for the movie. I mean, it made people uh, want to see it to see what was going to happen. That's true. That's very true. But um, so so we know what happened, and because Spock had such a glorious death, at least it was self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That you know, you know, it kind of it, it was accepted. It, you know, when we saw the movie, this group also asked for publisher Carrie O'Quinn's help in going to Paramount and demanding that Spock not die. Now, <laughs> Carrie O'Quinn, as much as we love him as fans, as being the publisher of Starlog magazine. 
he had no say when it came to anything going on in Paramount Pictures. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, well, the fans will just reach out to, to who they know. I mean, to who they know that they can write letters to. So that would have been Carrie at the time. I mean, I mean, you know, I didn't want Spock to die either. And, and when you think about it now, we, we haven't seen him die on screen, even though, well, yeah, we do know he has passed, but they just haven't, they haven't shown it. So, so that is something that's probably, you know, best not, not exactly seen in, in, in canon. Hi, this is Peter David, and when I want to hear more about what's going on in the world of Star Trek, I tune into Star Pod Log. Now, we mentioned that there was no toys, no merchandising, no anything for Star Trek II, virtually. One of the reasons for that is because the merchandising that they made for the motion picture, some of it might have some popularity, but it was not the blockbuster popularity that they were expecting. So a lot of toys that were made for the motion picture that were released in 1979 were still on the toy shelves Christmas of 1981. One of these items we're going to talk about right now, the Star Trek Space Design Center. This is a curiosity. It's a large box, probably about 2 feet tall, about 18 inches wide. It's pretty impressive. It's actually a design studio. It has paper doll cutouts of Spock, Kirk, and Ilea, as well as a plethora of items so you could design not only your own aliens, but also clothes for these characters. So it looks like um, a drawing and coloring kit. That that's what it shows on the on the on the box. And so it's we kind have of this like... in our collection. So you're holding it right now in your hands. How much? I mean, it has some weight to it, huh? Yeah, it does. It's um, I mean, it's not too heavy, but yeah, there's some weight to it. So you know, it's something significant in it. It, it kind of reminds me of, of fashion plates, which was something I had as a little girl, where you could um, put together different um, clothes, and it was just a drawing, rubbing and tracing and coloring thing on paper so that's kind of that's what this is it's very similar it looks like you can create your own aliens so was this something you had as a kid so no i did not have this what i did have that came around the same time it was called the star trek color and recolor game cloth which it wasn't a game it was literally like a plastic tablecloth that was white with black outlines and all you do was color it in, like with crayons. And then when you're all done coloring it, my mother just, I don't know, she put it in a dishwasher or wiped it down or somehow just, you were able to reuse it. So this is totally different. It came out around the same time. I still have not found that at a convention because I like to buy things in real life instead of online. But uh, this is something I think more geared towards not just coloring in, but actually creating. The, the one that I had would have like Kirk and Spock and then it would it was more of an abstract if you could think of a tablecloth like the size of a square table the kids when we were growing up the kids did not eat at the same table as the adults so Thanksgiving time all the adults the family members would would eat at the dining room table and the kids would either be at a card table or on the kitchen table so if you think like a, a card table size tablecloth that's that's what we had yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So it sounds like um, what what they had in some there are some restaurants where they had like the brown paper on the table for kids to color on. Yes. Except this like wasn't that. brown. It wasn't paper. It was white and it was plastic. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so that's the closest thing that I had to coloring and activities 
during this era of the late 70s, early 80s, whereas because you had fashion plates, you had something similar to this, I would say. Yeah, but mine, yeah, mine, it just wasn't uh, Star Trek themed, but yes. Yeah, and and this whole thing of paper dolls, I know my brother had a Welcome Back Cotter paper doll, which was, even when he got it, it was incredibly uncomfortable. It was a, a doll of Mr. Cotter wearing boxer shorts and a wife beater. Like, why would I want this? This doesn't even make any sense. This is silly. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that is the way they made the paper dolls. The the base doll ha- had to have minimum of clothes because you want to put clothes on them. I'm yeah, you're making a mess. Yeah. yeah, I'm pulling out the box now. And... <laughs> the box has a <laughs> kind of a hole on the bottom, so things are falling out the bottom, all the flat stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> That's like a kid on Christmas morning. Yeah. But but it's like the these like Kirk, Spock and Ilea actually have clothes on. Oh, that's what you wanted to show me. But, it, but I mean, the Kirk and Spock, yeah, you know how those motion picture costumes were like pajamas, as they always say. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's not like much to your chagrin. It doesn't have naked Spock. Yeah. <laughs> oh, these are neat. These are punch outs. And, and this one that we have is used, but it's still intact. The... I guess it's never been punched out. Or maybe it has. They could have just stuck it back in the frame. That's neat, though. But the Ilea is wearing sandals instead of what she wore in the motion picture. And she's not. she doesn't have the gem on her neck. But other than that, it looks like her. The, the curiosity to me about it is that they're really pushing about aliens. And we know in the motion picture, that was one of our frustrations, is there weren't enough aliens on screen. Yeah, they would just sh- they, they just showed a glimpse of them in one scene in the movie. I mean, that was where most of the aliens were, and but they, it, it's like they created the aliens just for the merchandising. There's so much of the, the merchandising that came out for the motion picture that that had the aliens, and that was how you got to know, at least the names of the species. And this picture has like like it's got Kirk in his uniform from TNP. The one it's got a picture of Spock, but it, that's a modified uniform, not one that he wore in the movie. And this kit is kind of interesting because not only does it have the paper doll cutouts, but it actually gives you these little textural overlays. So you could add unique textures to anything that you design for the characters, such as you could add fur, you can add corduroys, uh, very 70s there. Fashion plates, was that similar? Um, it, it did have a way to do textures, yes, it did. So, so that is neat, yeah. And one of the things that I think about how this applies to modern-day conventions is that we've noticed recently there's more and more cons doing quiet coloring, adult coloring. Yeah, we did that at, at um, Dragon Con last year. They had a room where where you could just sit and and color, and it was nice and quiet. Not many people there. And more and more conventions are doing that, giving you a break from all the parties and just saying, here's some coloring pencils. Here's some pictures, and it's amazing how tranquil it is to do that. I never thought I'd be a person that would like to take a break at a convention and just sit there and color, but it does have a certain amount of serenity. And when we did that at DragonCon, we we started thinking about this item in our collection and said, let's pull it out and let's play with it a little bit. It really is a unique pastime that's not just for kids. And I do adult coloring at home. I've got some coloring books, and um, and one of them is Star Trek, and then you know I also have some others d- that are designs and stuff, and they are a lot of fun for me. It's just something that um that I like to do every once in a while. And there are other coloring groups. I've done adult coloring with um with a geek girls group, 
And there, there are some meetup groups that are just coloring only. That's what they do once a month. And it, it's pretty neat. So this is a unique look at an item that you don't see too often, the Star Trek Space Design Center. And think about what life was like back in the early 1980s being a Star Trek fan. Greetings, my name is David Hewitt. I am the bass player for the nerd rock band Foot Pound Force, coming at you from Huntsville, Alabama. Filk music. That article is uh, was written by uh, B.O. Trimble, and it uh, was titled, All the Filkers Are Singing. So, first of all, we got to ask, what is filk music? Well, filk music is a typo. Originally, in the 1975 World Science Fiction Convention, they were making the program, and there had been a long tradition at conventions of people bringing musical instruments and singing Fanish tunes, and uh, uh, they were basically scheduling these folk music circles, and somebody hit a typo and transposed an I instead of an O, and that became filk instead of folk. Well, it stuck, and all these years later, that's basically now the music of fandom. In 1982, uh, the fandom community was was uh, a little more insulated because there wasn't an internet yet, and a lot of the news uh, for different things going on in the fandom community came from magazines like Starlog. Just to give you a little bit of a background here, my band, Foot Pound Force, is a nerd rock band based out of Huntsville, Alabama. We are regulars in the filk track at Dragon Con. We have been for off and on for the last 10 years. Because of that experience, um, you could say that I might be a bit of an authority on uh, what filk music really is and what it relates to um, in the Starpod Log podcast. It's a little complicated, honestly. I come at it from, from a much different direction than, than maybe some other filk singers, but it means a lot of different things. Uh, aside from uh, the rhythm guitarist Andrew Dubel in the band, uh, I am the probably the biggest Star Trek fan out of everybody in the band. Uh, we have a, a band logo that came out with our last album, a mission patch, so to speak. And uh, we had uh, this was back when the band was a three-piece band, and uh, and we had our our names um, in the mission patch, uh, and one was in the in uh, the Star Wars language of Arabesh. Our drummer Brandon Whitworth claimed that one, and then uh, the Lord of the Rings Tingwar language of elves was our uh, uh, lead guitarist and singer Ken Barnes, and of course my name was in Klingon. So there you go. But anyways, uh, uh, to to give you a quick background here, a foot pound force. Uh, we're we're uh, rocket scientists basically in our day job. Rocket scientists and engineers. Uh, I've been working as a rocket propulsion engineer for most of my career, and uh, Brandon Whitworth, our our drummer, has been in the space business for a long time too. And and uh, Ken Barnes, our our lead guitarist, has also been in the space business. Our our, uh, our odd man out is Andrew Dubel, who our excellent rhythm guitarist is a. Uh, uh, He's he's an IT guy, but he's an IT engineer. So therefore, we're all engineers, of, and and so we bring that kind of a, a perspective into um, what what we play and what we write. Of course, uh, Andrew and I are the biggest Star Trek fans in the entire group, so uh, we're probably the biggest authorities here. I'm probably the most plugged into some of the fanish communities that uh, that would have been referenced in old issues of Starlog. Just to give you a quick background for us, though, uh, 
I started playing music with uh, Ken and Brandon uh, as far back as the late 1990s when we were students together at the University of Alabama in Huntsville when we were all in engineering school. We also, uh, before we played music together, we played role-playing games together. We used to do a lot of tabletop stuff, uh, uh, mostly the West End Star Wars game, but I also ran a FAZA Star Trek game. And in that game, I was I was the uh, I was running it, and and Ken he was the captain of the starship, and Brandon was the chief engineer. So I, f- I figured that was actually pretty accurate. We ran one campaign about twenty five, twenty six years ago that was a lot of fun, but we hadn't looked back since because then I started getting into music, and Brandon and Ken were both really much more accomplished musicians than I was at the time. Um, you know, I bought my first guitar when I turned twenty one and uh, started learning to play, and and some of my early jam partners were Brandon and Ken and Brandon, they both, the, both of them were playing guitar at the time. So we were mostly just kind of messing around and I didn't really know my chords or anything. And I was just kind of, kind of goofing off. And they, they kept telling me back then that I should learn to play bass. And, uh, you know, I wasn't listening cause I wanted to be a lead guitarist like the rest of them. Anyways, Ken, Ken, that Ken went and joined the band during that time period. And I started hanging out with that band and, and, uh, one thing led to another and, I ended up being handed a bass guitar and said, Hey, uh, our bass player is uh, not reliable and we're not even sure he's going to make it to our first show at this frat party we're supposed to play at. So we need you to learn all the songs. If you want to be a backup bass player, like, okay, well I could try that. And, uh, you know, I took the bass player, went, went, took, took the bass guitar and took it to bed with me and listened to the rehearsal tape and listened to all their original songs. And I played along with all their songs till I learned all their songs. And then that frat party came along and lo and behold, that other bass player didn't show up and I was it. So that's how I started playing bass. Since then, uh, you know, that band was called Karma Parade and that was, uh, me and Ken were in that band together for four years from 1998 to 2002. And, uh, Brandon was doing other things and, uh, Karma Parade was a lot of fun, but uh, we uh, moved on to other things, and I was in several other bands, including one band that broke up on stage, and come around 2006 or 2007, Brandon started pestering me and, and wanting to start a band. So I said, okay, let's I'll start jamming with you again, Brandon. And Brandon said, oh, I got this great electronic drum set. I've always wanted to play it with, with somebody. So, all right, all right, so we got a rhythm section, and so we need to find a guitar player. Well, and walked in at that point was my old college buddy, uh, Matt Barron, uh, who, uh, went, gra- almost graduated with, he graduated about two semesters before me in engineering school. And Matt, Matt was an amazing guitar player, amazing lyricist, and, and, uh, uh, you know, epic rap battle, uh, quality, just amazing, uh, musician. Uh, and he could just come up with lyrics on the fly and, and just, uh, uh, just blow you away with how fast he could come up with content. Starting it around the fall of 2007 is the, when we started as a band as a three piece and we evolved and, uh, uh, we didn't play a lot of shows, but we, we, uh, were writing a lot of material and, and making up stuff on the fly. And that was around that time where I first heard of Filk because I played a space exploration song that I used to do with, uh, Karma Parade and, and Brandon said, that's a Filk song. And I was like, well, what's Filk? And that's when I looked it up and lo and behold, yeah, it was a Filk song. We kind of started to find our niche playing in conventions. The first convention we played at was actually the International Space Development Conference in 2011 in the con suite. That's, that's the kind of show where, where you're not going to believe who's waiting at, who's listening to us out in the hallway during the party. None other than people like Buzz Aldrin and, and other luminaries. But, uh, that was kind of the start of our thing. We played some hacker conventions after that. And uh, by 2012 though, Brandon and I got the wild idea of let's try to play at Dragon Con. And Matt had already been going to Dragon Con for several years. And so we decided, Hey, let's, uh, let's jump in on this and see 
what we could learn. So Matt was already there and he was already partying and Brandon and I were driving into Atlanta and trying to figure out things to do. And I was, uh, on my, on my, uh, my old Blackberry smartphone at the time looking at the, at the program. And that's when I discovered, Hey, Dragon Con has a filk track. And Brandon and I decided that, Hey, we're going to go check out the open filk. You know, we walked into our first Dragon Con, like in mid Dragon Con. And if anybody's ever been to Dragon Con, you know how crazy it is and how many costumes are everywhere and how impressive the buildings are and just downtown Atlanta just being so amazing. We walked in with, uh, with instruments and, and, and I had my, had my bass guitar and my gig bag on my back and we walked in and, and got absorbed into it and finally found our way to the room where the filk music was going on. And that's where we introduced ourselves to the filk people. You know, it was instant, instant friendship with people and we, we, uh, didn't know anybody yet, but, uh, we, we played some songs and, and found out that one of the other performers was a retired rocket scientist. And, and, you know, so we're like, Hey, we're, we're kind of in, in, uh, uh, we're kind of in among friends here. Things move along. The Dragon Con was crazy. Uh, we finally were able to grab Matt and get him to sober up a little bit and, and say, Hey Matt, we want to all, we want to get your guitar. We want to play, um, we want to play in the open filk. It was the last night of Dragon Con. We were finally able to do this. And, and, uh, we went and rehearsed, uh, in the, uh, <laughs> in the atrium right outside Matt's room in the Marriott on the 40th floor. And, uh, and if you've ever been in the Marriott at Dragon Con, it's a spectacular sight. And so we rehearsed up there and, and we made our way down to the Filk room over in the Hyatt and introduced ourselves to the, to the Filk crowd and played a few songs and made some, made some quick uh, acquaintances and friendships with people. And, and, uh, the assistant track director at the time, Amber, she said, Hey, uh, you, if you want to play here, we need to apply. And so we started the process of applying to get into Dragon Con, which also, basically also started the process of being rejected <laughs> because it's really hard to get in over a dragon con and and we didn't truly appreciate how hard it was at the time being rewarded for our efforts uh, the filk track invited us to be fan performers in 2013 and we had an hour set we went over pretty well there and and had a had a great time and and uh, they invited us back in 2014 and in 2015, so we basically did the same thing those three years in a row where we were fan performers. We had an hour slot. And then come 2016, we actually got accepted as uh, as a house band of sorts to play mostly in the filk track, but actually play a show on one of the concourse stages as well. And so that was kind of the beginning for us on that. But we, I think we played like four shows during that Dragon Con and uh, made a lot of friend, a lot more friends. And, and uh, 2017, we didn't get invited, but Brandon and I showed up anyway, and we did some filk circles and introduced some songs. I got a song about a self-driving truck leaving a guy that uh, um, I got to debut with that crowd. And, and that, that, was, <laughs> that was actually quite popular. I even performed it solo in front of a 300-person uh, uh, panel called the Solve for X for the science track. That was a filk song too. I mean, we, it was, it's, it's, uh, I was based on a meme. In fact, several of our songs are based on memes. You know, 2018, we were invited, uh, back to do, uh, uh, be a house band again, but just strictly focusing on the filk track. But we also did some busking and some, some other things. We busked, we, we busked in the, in the art show and we, we, uh, played a few shows in the filk track and played a filk showcase and, 2019, we, uh, uh, we were invited as fan performers in the filk track again. And, uh, then of course COVID happened. So we didn't play hardly anything. We did do a, a, a virtual show with Dragon Con filk track, uh, during the lead up to the 2020 virtual Dragon Con. 
And in 2021, we didn't do anything. And finally, come 2022, uh, we we actually got uh, invited once again to be official uh, house band performers, just to focus on the concourse stage. So uh, this past this past year, we we performed on the Dragon Con concourse stage, and and uh, it was a yeah, it was a lot of fun. And that's actually where Nayar finally came and introduced himself to me in person. And I'd been talking to him online for quite a while. And, and we kind of got the ball rolling on this. Um, now in the history of the band, uh, uh, at the end of 2014, Matt decided to move to Chattanooga and we had to go find another player. And that's when I invited Ken Barnes, uh, our old buddy, uh, from way back when to join us. And that kind of started a revolution with, uh, uh, different songwriting and different, uh, performing. And, and, uh, we pl- started playing a lot more shows. Around 2019, uh, we had the spectacular honor of opening for the, uh, the Transformer band known as the Cybertronic Spree, who are just an amazing party band. They, they are, they are spectacular. Um, we've actually got to open it for them this year as well, two show, both times at the Huntsville Comic and Pop Culture Expo. And, but that first time we did in 2019, there was somebody watching us perform who, uh, introduced himself after the show. We were, we were already interested in finding a fourth member. And, uh, this guy just kind of fit the bill perfectly in terms of his attitude and his his sense of humor and that's how Andrew Dubel joined the band so we we became a four piece at that point he started playing shows with us in 2019 throughout 2019 and he's been with us ever since uh, in 2018 2017 2018 we recorded our first album uh stuck in the gravity well with our buddy Mike Lennox producing right now we're actually in the middle of recording a new album um We'll knock on wood, see when we were actually able to get that finished, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been something. But anyways, we have a bunch of songs about a bunch of different nerdy topics. Um, we do have a Star Trek song. It's a very Star Trek focused and it is, uh, a <laughs> song of my own personal experience having a crush on Counselor Troy when I was 13. And basically it's the, it's the lament of a teenager that wants to kiss the TV screen every time their favorite uh, character they want to ship with themselves comes on the screen. So the song's called TV Kiss. And we wrote that song way back in like 2009. Um, we're finally getting around to recording it. Hopefully we can have it on the new album. So that's, that just gives you the round number of how Foot Pound Force came to be. And how we relate to Filk is we've been in and out of the Filk world uh, through mostly through Dragon Con. Uh, but we've gotten to know several performers. And it's really interesting looking at this old article uh, written by B.O. Trimble, of course, because she actually spent two pages and about six columns uh, really going into a lot of detail about contemporary filk performers of 1982 and talking about uh you know what are you going to do when 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 you're when you're in deep in the halls of the convention center and it's after hours and and you want to go all of a sudden you find some people that are sitting around singing and passing a guitar around and and passing a mandolin around or whatever and and everybody's in a circle and they're performing different funny songs for each other or or just songs about different fan stuff and a lot of things that Philk is a lot known for is a lot of parody songs a lot of like Weird Al type of thing where, where people, people come up with, with, with new lyrics to old tunes. You know, it's very, very heavy in the filk world and it's still, there's still quite a bit of people that do this. And in this article, uh, she actually spends quite a bit of, uh, space talking about some of these songs that were contemporary in that time period. <laughs> there's one, uh, I'm not exactly sure who they're referring to, uh, in this article, but, uh, there's a song to Battle Hymn of the Republic, and the song's called Quark's Song by Karen Trimble. 
And, and it's no, no relation to Quark from Deep Space Nine, unfortunately, because this predates that by a decade. But mine eyes have seen the garbage that's adrift in endless space. I was a little flat there, but anyways, that's, she, so she published some lyrics here, but some, some things, she's got some stuff talking about to, to the tune of Clementine, and it's, uh, talking about, uh, Richard Dreyfus will go with them, and the little kid will myth them. Yes, our hero will go when they go spoken, but it's, it's, it's basically close encounters of the third kind. Stuff about Moonbase Alpha, left my heart in San Francisco, uh, <laughs> So there's a song about changing fandom here where the memories of Star Trek seemed oh so far away, but then I heard of a new show on the way. I placed my hope in Moon Moonbase Alpha. I believe that's Space 1999, so that's kind of a little older than me, but uh you know, I'm a, I was I'm a I'm an ex-annual uh you know, so born in 77 like me and two other members of the band. So there's some things in here that's a little before our time. I never really got into space 1999, but there's some stuff about, about, uh, <laughs> these are a few of my favorite things tune, but, uh, but it's, uh, I guess it's the doctor's pockets. So it probably at this time period, probably the fourth doctor in doctor who jackknife and yo-yo and things I find handy grubby white bag full of bright colored candy. Yeah, definitely Tom Baker there. Anyways, these are, these are a lot of examples of, of things that people were singing in Filk back in the early eighties. But let's see. She, she talks about some Star Trek stuff, a song called the Klingon Diplomatic Corps Marching Song, Imperialism for Fun and Profit by, uh, Paula Smith and What Shall We Do with a Drunken Vulcan by Roberta, Roberta Rogo and a man, a tune to a man of constant sorrow. She also wrote called young Spock's farewell to Vulcan. So you can imagine that a lot of this stuff is, is very, uh, very in tune with, uh, what was Star Trek, uh, at the time, which was basically the original series, the animated series and Star Trek, the motion picture, because the Wrath of Khan hadn't even come out yet. And so a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the material that they were mining was just, you know, in that time period. And I'd be interested to see how many Filk songs were, were written about, oh, say, Vonda McIntyre's Entropy Effect, which I just recently read after, you know, for the first time, even though it was published over 40 years ago. You know, I've read, speaking of which, I read a lot of Star Trek books growing up and in my adulthood. So I'm pretty familiar with, with the different world building going on here. But yes, another thing that, another thing that was mentioned in this article is that there's several, there's several uh, uh, collections of Filk songs that were published in books in that time period. Several reference books where she actually has has uh, 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 check, name checked uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven books that uh, that are all collections of Filk music that uh, that she, you know, because this was pre-internet. Um, she gives a mailing address and hey, send a self-addressed stamped envelope plus money to the uh, Masteria Star Wars and other Filk songs by the L.A. Philharmonics or uh, Wester Filk Collection Number One and or or uh, Fantastic Filk Songs and Other Fanish Delights Number One Fanzine with 24 Chris Weber songs, uh, the NESFA Hymnal Second Edition. Oh, so I guess the New, New England Science Fiction Association. All right, so you, uh, so somebody at MIT was publishing that, and here you go. Sing a song of Trekkin, a fun-filled folio of twenty Trekker Filk songs by Roberta Rogo. It'll be interesting to see if some of these are actually still out there. 
she she's Bill Trimble speaks pretty highly of of a lot of uh, uh, contemporary science fiction authors at the time, like Paul Anderson and Robert Heinlein and and uh, Theodore Sturgeon and uh, Larry Niven and Ben Bova. Uh, a lot of these people got into the filk music scene too. In fact, uh, Larry Niven has been a regular attendee of the Dragon Con filk track, and I'm proud to say that he's seen my band perform twice. And, uh, you know, as a, as a big fan of his work, I was always, always just, just nerding out seeing him sitting. In fact, our, our album release party show in 2018, uh, he sat in the front row. <laughs> now I'll tell you what, that, that really made, made the nerd in me really, uh, uh, happy. It would have been even cooler if some Star Trek actor came, but you know, we can't, can't wish for, wish for everything, but, uh, Anyway, speaking of which, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, somebody showed up incognito to our last show at Dragon Con that was one of the voice actors from, in, from Encanto, but that's a different story. <laughs> so anyways, it's a neat thing here looking at this article because, you know, Bill Trimble was very, uh, very thorough in what she, uh, uh, put together and she has so many different songs that she's, com- she's commenting on and quoting. She even talks about the, the SCA, Society for Creative Anachronism. And so that kind of brings to what I wanted to spend the last few minutes of my time slot here uh, talking about is the overlap of the fan scene here um, in Filk. Because even back in the early 80s, Filk music was was uh, not just uh, science fiction fans, but it was also fantasy fans, and it was it was uh, um, it was people involved with the Society for Creative Anachronism, as well as as you know, the Renaissance Fair uh, people, and so so it's 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 interesting that nowadays you could still kind of draw a Venn diagram where one circle would be scientists and engineer types that happen to be songwriters and performers. And another another uh, circle of that Venn diagram would be uh, Renaissance Fair uh, people, uh, and then another circle of that Venn diagram would be comedians, and uh, comedians that happen to be really into nerdy stuff. Finally, uh, uh, another uh, circle in that Venn diagram would be actual authors, uh, uh, and still to this day, because in fact several several published authors by Bain Books uh, are mainstays, uh, in, in, as well as other publishers are still mainstays in the DragonCon filk, filk circles, as well as other other conventions filk circles like uh, Con Carolinas and and uh, uh, the Ohio Ohio Valley Filk Fest and and the Emerald Emerald City Filk Fest. Um, there's conventions all over the country that that have very very robust filk communities. So it's it's still going very strong and it's very diverse. Uh, I can tell you more about today's filk community than I can from 1982's filk community. But if you want to find out more, there are some great resources out there. And uh, one of those resources is a fellow by the name of Eric Coleman. And Eric has a podcast called The Filk Cast. And every week he features uh, music by several uh, filk uh, performers Foot Pound Force has been on his show several times, and we are very indebted to him for for giving us that kind of exposure. There's also uh, the Ohio Valley Folk Fest, which I mentioned earlier. They are the home to the Pegasus Awards, and the Pegasus Awards are kind of the Grammys for filk musicians. And and you can at at, at OVFF, uh, it's it's a convention that's just completely focused on the music, and they have they have filk circles constantly, and and people songwriting and performing and and busking and, and a huge showcase. Con Carolinas in North Carolina has a has a very strong filk presence, and then of course the Dragon Con filk track, and of course Dragon Con filk track is what I know most about, as I've been a been a performer and contributor to for many years. 
Um, and I want to give a big special shout out to Amber Hansford, who is the Filk Track Director at DragonCon. She puts together an amazing uh, program every year with the help of a lot of volunteers. Uh, Robbie Hilliard, who is, uh, was the, was one of the was a previous track director, as well as the track mom uh, Pat Deverinus. They they've done an, just an, an amazing effort helping helping uh, compile everything in this community. I'm going to name check a whole bunch of artists, and and there's. One thing that uh, Pat Deverinus does every year is she curates a filk songbook that is kind of in the same same uh, vein as as these uh, uh, references that uh, Bill Trimble puts at the back of the article here. And so every year, DragonCon uh, attendees or pre- previous DragonCon attendees submit their own music, their own songs uh, uh, to this filk songbook, and and it's it's a uh, it's it's pretty robust. So. Um, but I'm going to say like uh, the ones that I've encountered and I've performed with and I've, I've been able to meet with and talk with and get to know Tom Smith. He's been doing it for probably 40 years. Uh, he's based out of Michigan and he tours all over the place and does conventions all over the place. Really funny guy, amazing songwriter. He comes up with stuff on the fly like you wouldn't believe. Uh, Mikey Mason, uh, based out of Indiana, he's he's another uh, another prolific songwriter and performer, and uh, um, he's 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 calls himself the comedy rock geek. They're, they're they're two of the big mainstays that that get the big stages at these things. Uh, and you know you've also got Wizard Rock Band, the Blibbering Humdingers, and they kind of they're they're kind of a Ren Fair. Uh, originally a Renfair based, uh, band, but they, they also perform a lot of conventions. And I say Wizard Rock because they're part of a niche of Harry Potter fans that, that, that play Wizard Rock. And there's a ton of bands there. Draco and the Malfoys and, and the Tonks and the Aurors, who we opened for one time. And there's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, horror, you know, like, like horror movie, video game, uh, uh, themed mu- uh, bands, uh, uh, the geckos, uh, uh, my friend, Jared Claxon, the, the, the front man for the geckos, him and, and, uh, Zach loop. Uh, so, so funny, great performers, great songwriters. They, they focus quite a bit on, on, on the goth side of, of humor. Other, other performers like Alyssa Yeager. She's a, she's performs a lot of stuff for kids at libraries and things like that in her hometown. And, uh, then there's Madison Matricula Roberts, uh, based out of North Carolina. She, she is really, really just, just an amazing musician herself. And she performs, she does a thing on, on Twitch, um, every week that she gets a lot of people watching her thing and, and she performs all kinds of music and she has a, she has the adult side and she has the, the, the goofy side, but she, she's kind of a, a comedy rock musician clown persona. And, uh, she has kind of a, 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 she sings a lot of dirty songs, a lot of pirate drinking songs and a lot of things like that, as well as uh, stuff that's more fit for the children. She's, she's good friend. She's really, she's really talented. There's so many that I probably can't even, I can't even count, but, uh, and so many, I'm, so many new ones I meet every year. Uh, and there's, there's the ones that have been in the circles with, uh, uh, Cybertronic Spree, who we opened for in 2019. They, they have all kinds of bands all over the place where they play that open for them. And one of the, one of the best ones that we've gotten to know recently is Bathroom of the Future, who were guests at DragonCon this year. And they, they, uh, they're, they're nerds, nerds themselves. And they didn't really know much about Filk. We had to introduce them to Filk. There's also a uh, uh, guy by the name of uh, uh, Eric Parker, who's who's uh, who's really good. And there's and there's people that are still at it that that were that were mentioned in this article, like Leslie Fish. And, uh, you know, they don't they don't go far and wide. But uh, 
Uh, you still hear about them. There's also uh, a rocket scientist, another rocket scientist, Mitchell Burnside Clapp, who's been doing it for 50-something years, as well as his wife, TJ. She's been a filk performer for a really long time as well. Um, in fact, she was one of the earliest cosplayers of Star Wars. She, she, uh, there's, there's a meme going around a picture of her in 1977 with the uh, X-wing flight suit that she made. But it's, 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 uh, but it's, 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 it's really, it's a great community. Of, and if you like music and you like, you like witty lyrics and, and, and fun stuff, this is, this is be really, really something up your alley. To say the least, this has been a great, a great honor for, for, uh, for me to be included in this podcast. It's a great show. I'm, uh, <laughs> I've been a, re- I was a reader of Starlog pretty prolifically when I was a kid. So it's pretty neat reading these old articles and, and finding stuff that's relevant today. I, I want to, if anybody wants to find out more about Filk, you just look it up on Google. There's, there's a, uh, DragonCon Filk track has several videos on YouTube of a bunch of different performers, uh, uh, talking about what Filk is. Oh, and speaking of which, I, I, I can't go anywhere without finally mentioning the Brobdingnagian Bards, who are a mainstay. They kind of came from the Renfair community themselves, but, uh, Mark Gunn and Andrew McKee, um, Andrew McKee's got a great podcast as well. Um, but Mark, Mark performs solo with his own stuff and him and Mikey Mason do Firefly based drinking songs together. So if you're anybody Firefly fans out there, they do a lot of that stuff. And finally, I'm going to close off and talk about a contemporary phenomenon that I have noticed among people writing filk songs about Star Trek. And that is, I have seen several variations of a red shirt blues. And so I'm going to close this with my red shirt blues. It's uh <laughs> it's basically a typical 12 bar blues song and and I wrote it about 6 or 7 years ago. Maybe not that long ago, but it was basically maybe 2018 I think I wrote it, but I wrote it to perform at Dragon Con and then since then I have <laughs> I have encountered it many times. Well, it's time again for the lots. Just don't draw the short straw. If safety's in your thoughts, don't obey the second law, cause there's no plot armor for you. When you're a red shirt on the Enterprise. Yeah, here we go. The captain needs an escort. Take your phaser and your wits. Go beam down and report. You're not on the survivor list, you're just crewman number six. When you're a red shirt on the Enterprise. Go above and beyond your peers. Join up and see the universe. The recruiter seems so sincere, but this five-year mission's a curse. It sure couldn't get no worse when you're a red shirt on the Enterprise. So, yeah, there's my red shirt blues. And there are several other variations. A lot of other performers have come up with their red shirt blues, but I'm going to sign off with that. And uh, uh, if you want to learn more about Foot Pound Force, you can look us up. That's uh, at footpoundforce.bandcamp.com, and we're all over the social medias. And and I hope that everybody has a trekking good time. Got myself lucky to have seen the trailer, but I did not watch the analysis of the trailer. Did not attend the after party of the trailer But on YouTube 20 more times I saw the trailer No spoilers for me, bro I'm doing it old school No spoilers for me, bro I'm doing it old school This issue of Starlog Magazine closes...
with an enterprising Christmas. In the spirit of the holiday season, the quest entry this month is a poem entitled An Enterprising Christmas. Jan L. Margaret wrote this piece for her friends and thought that we at Starlog and all our Trekker readers would want to share her sci-fi Christmas greetings. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the ship, not a computer was working, not even a blip. The radios were silenced by Uhura with care, in hopes the Federation would forget they were there. The crewmen were nestled, all snug in their beds, while visions of Wrigley's pleasure planet danced in their heads, and Kirk in his quarters and Rx in his nest had just settled down to a well-deserved rest." When down in the lab there arose such a clatter, Kirk sprang from his bed to see what was the matter. To the turbo lift he rushed with a roar, dropped down two decks, and burst from the door. The light in the walls of corridor space gave the dimness of evening to the captain's face, when what to his suspicious eyes should appear but three anti-grav units piled high with some gear. Behind them a fellow dressed up all in red, with a white flowing beard and a cap on his head, more stealthily than Klingons, his helpers they came, and he whispered and motioned and called them by name. Now yeoman, now ensign, now nurse and lieutenant, be quick now, commander, we have a time limit. To the halls of the crew, to the end of each hall, now dash it and darn it, be quiet, you all. As good warriors ready to enter a fray, when they meet with a leader, rush to obey. So up to the sixth deck, the helpers they flew, each pair with a grav unit, and the gear piled on too. And in but a twinkling, Kirk gave hot pursuit, to see what this fellow would do with his loot, as he hid in a niche, and was turning to spy, out of a room the fellow backed with a sigh. He was covered in fur from his head to his dome, and his body was rounded with stuffing of foam, white trimming about his fat belly traversed, and he looked like a tribble just ready to burst. The end of a stylus he held tight in his fist and marked off each stop on his computer print list. His droll little mouth was drawn up in a grin that went almost unseen neath the beard on his chin. His helper was taller and dressed up like an elf, and Kirk smiled when he saw him in spite of himself. The slant of a brow and the point of an ear soon gave Kirk to know he had nothing to fear. They spoke not a word, but went straight to their chore, and placed a wrapped package inside every door. Then meeting the others, all finished and done, they headed back down from where they had come. Kirk sprang from his niche to watch them take their leave, and the last thing he saw was the red fellow's sleeve. But Kirk heard him exclaim, ere he dove out of sight, I'm a doc, not a Santa. Hope I got everything right. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Yeah, I remember reading that. Yeah, it was it was so awesome. What a great way to end the magazine. Yeah. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thanks for listening to us. Don't forget to subscribe to our show and give us positive feedback on your podcast app. Your five-star reviews are always welcome. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. All I have to do is push this little red button. 